Hey guys, and welcome back. I would like to thank Nutrafol for sponsoring today's episode. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement brand and is physician formulated with 100% drug-free ingredients. Go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code INSANE to save $10 off your first month subscription plus free shipping on every order. Enjoy today's episode. My name is Emily and I'm in recovery from addiction. We'll just start from the beginning. Um, I was born and raised in Annapolis. Um, It's about 30 minutes outside Baltimore. Um, I had a relatively normal childhood. Um, My parents divorced when I was 13. I still haven't really made that distinction on whether or not it affected me or not, but I feel like it's important to put in there. Um, But that also raises another important point is that addiction does not discriminate um you know class race anything you know for I shouldn't have been an addict um someone on the outside looking into my life you know a white upper upper middle class kid should be okay I shouldn't be an addict but I but I am and that's you know it is what it is um I tried marijuana alcohol for the first time at 13 I feel like that's pretty normal everyone starts to experiment around that age um and I really never had any issues with it I've heard a lot of stories where people well oh I had my first drink at 13 and it was just like something clicked nothing really clicked so at Uh, this point in your life were you living with where is it like joint custody like were you living with your mom or your dad I you know I think I was in middle school so it was like a week with my dad a week with my mom and everything in life you said was like fine yeah okay, relatively like, normal okay. um I, around that point my mom moved to southern maryland okay um so i was starting to do every other weekend with her at that time too and that it hurt a little bit um because yeah. i have such i had such a great relationship with my mom so and again i, I haven't really pinpointed if that affected me or i feel not, like in but- life like everything has an effect like even if it's not something like even if that isn't the main cause or if it is who knows but like Mm -hmm. every little thing I feel like that happens has some sort of something it's a butterfly effect literally yeah Yeah, it's like well that did something and that did something so all right keep going okay Um, (laughs) and then so I was 17 I was going into my senior year of high school I got my tonsils taken out um surgery what I thought was successful um and I was sent home with like a five-day prescription of um Roxaset liquid Percocet to get you over that initial hump of like really bad pain um about a week post-op started having major complications like hemorrhaging I remember I bent down to get a towel and just blood um and it was awful and I you know probably every four to five days for the next six weeks, it would be, okay, everything's calmed down. And then I would start up again. Mm -hmm. So I was in and out of the hospital, um, probably for a couple months, um, just trying to figure out like, what the hell's going on. Um, So what should have been, you know, five days of an opioid prescription to get you over that initial hump turned into, you know, round the clock, every four hours of liquid Percocet into a 17 year old for six weeks straight. Um, so, you know, we, I had to get it fixed with a second surgery and again, thank God, um, that they fixed it, but that was, you know, they said, okay, you're done. You're good. So you don't need your pain medication anymore. Um, and that was when I first experienced, uh, withdrawals 
And right. I, yeah, I didn't know it at the time. I just thought this sucks. Like, did they just like take you off of it cold turkey or? Yeah. Um, that's like surprising to me that they didn't think that there would be any type of concern there since you were and, on it for so long. You know, you know, I didn't either. Yeah. Um, no one did. My parents just, yeah, you're good. Um, and that's actually really common. Um, even today, because this was what, 10 years ago Mm -hmm. god 10 years ago now it's still the same and it's a lot a lot of people have issues with that um that they're on a a relatively regular dose and then your Mm -hmm. doctor's like no i think you're good and and that's what leads a lot of people into addiction right um so i experienced those withdrawals it was awful couldn't sleep sweating hot and cold can't get comfortable i didn't know it at the time yeah um and Percocet's awesome. <laughs> like, so, you know, I, I remember I was like, I feel great. I have no pain. Um, I feel all warm and fuzzy. I'm getting the best sleep, the best naps of my life. So, I, you know, I feel like that might have planted a seed yeah. for later on in life. Um, but, you know, I got through my withdrawals, whatever. I finished my senior year of high school, relatively uneventful. Um, and I started college. I went to um, University of Kentucky. And I got to college and I was definitely got into drinking. You know, I wasn't drinking every day, but it whenever I would, it was binge drinking. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I've never been afraid of drugs. <laughs> like, I've never been someone that's been like, oh, no, I can't. I don't know why. I don't know if. It's just the way I am. I don't know if maybe I'm an addict and that's why I've never been scared of drugs. Sorry, I just bumped the mic. Okay. <laughs> well, I think too, like what I was going to say is sometimes I feel like it's based on experience because for myself, like I was never scared of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like I loved it. I think it's fun. Yeah. I still, even though I know it's not good for you. Oh, no, it's still it a great it's time. <laughs> but like with the drug aspect, I remember when I was, my first drug I tried was weed and I mm-hmm. had a horrible experience mm-hmm. with it and it was so scary and I was like, okay, after this, like, I'm scared to try anything harder. Right. Because my experience with weed was so bad and scary that you, so I feel like, but you said you were doing, you had done marijuana, right? When you are like 13, whatever. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like maybe because that didn't have any type of like negative effect. You're like, okay, like, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. feel like sometimes if you don't have like too bad of an experience or anything scary happened, you're like, yeah. oh, I'll try the next thing. Exactly. And-, and that's what it was. It was like, um, you know, I hate the marijuana as a gateway drug theory I hate that but that's you know I think whether or not I had smoked weed at 13 or not probably had no effect on me being an addict later in life but that was kind of the progression it was like okay well weed was fun let me try a little bit of alcohol alcohol's fun okay well well, too because everything's like a stepping stone yeah like I said if nothing bad happens yeah you're not gonna be scared or stop Mm -hmm. until something bad does happen in a way and that's the worst thing that can happen yeah nothing Right. When you try something and nothing happens, I didn't get in trouble. You know, I didn't get caught. That's the worst thing that could happen because mm-hmm. then it just, you know, allows you to keep going. Yeah. Um, so I was in college um, and I was trying harder stuff. I was doing coke. I tried acid for the first time. I did shrooms for the first time. Um, and needless to say, I failed out of college <laughs> that first semester. I wasn't going to classes. Um, like I, I, like I was just having too much fun Yeah. and my GPA was like one point something. So I came back home. I went to community college and 
the plan was to go back to community college, get my GPA back up and then um, go back. And, you know, I think in the back of my mind, I knew that's maybe not what I wanted to do. Um, But at this point in my life, I was so scared of disappointing my parents and I felt like there was so much pressure on me, especially after the, can I cuss? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Anything. Like, especially after this major fuck up of failing out of college, I was so scared of disappointing the people around me that I just went with it. This is the plan. We're going to go back. We're going to raise our GPA and we're going to get back to college. And I had that mindset. This is what we're doing. Um, even regardless if I wanted to or not, this is what we're doing. Um, so I came home, I got a job. I was a bikini barista for a good chunk of my um, early adult life. Um, and in theory, it was perfect. I would do my 6 a.m. to noon shift and then I would go to afternoon classes and I would and it was perfect. And it was perfect for a little bit um, until I realized that all my coworkers were on pills. Everyone, every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like this open secret that, you know, they're all doing pills, but no one's really talking about it. The boss knows, mm-hmm. but she's just going to, you know, let it ignore slide, it. ignore yeah. it, ignore the problem. Um, I met uh, my boyfriend at that time who was also on pills. And it was just, you know, a perfect storm of this is what I walk into every day or these people that are doing pills. Yeah. And, and if that's what you're surrounded with. Yeah. And it's, it just it seemed so normal. Right. Um. And the first time I tried it, I a few days earlier, I had loaned my coworker 30 bucks and she came in to relieve me of the morning shift. She said, oh, I got to pay you back. I don't have money, but I do have a pill. It's like it's worth $30 on the street. Did she tell you what it was? I knew what it was. I think just from hearing them talk about it and seeing it, I knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go back, I've never been scared of trying drugs. Right. <laughs> um But I also think if I hadn't had that experience with opioids as a 17-year-old, you know, I can't say for sure if that maybe influenced me to be like, yeah, I remember how awesome it was. Um, You know, either way, I took it and I was like, sure, whatever. And I tried it. Um, And it was great. You know, I'm not going to come on here as an addict in recovery and say that, you know, drugs aren't fun. They're great. That's why people do that. Right. <laughs> um, and um, that kind of started, I, I like to car- compartmentalize my life into eras. And I know mm-hmm. that's kind of overused now, like, oh, I'm in my pill era now. But yeah. that's just, I think of the car I had, the people right. I was hanging out with, the boyfriend I had at the time. So I, and that kind of starts my first like era is the way that I think of it. Um, at this time, I was making stupid money. I was, mm-hmm. you know, making my little $5 an hour at the coffee shop, but I was making at least 200 bucks in a five-hour shift. So I'd walk out with $200 every morning to go spend half of it on my $100 a day pill habit. Um, because I was making so much money, I, you know, I wasn't stealing. I wasn't really lying. Um, and I was able to keep that up for a long time. At this point, my parents still trusted me. They had no reason not to trust me. And you don't think they knew at all? You know what? I don't know. I don't think they did. There were some, like, 
I guess, hiccups that would pop up. Like, yeah. what's this I found in your car? And I was always able to talk my way out right. of it because they still trusted me at that yeah. time. They had no reason to not. So they took whatever I said at face value. That would change very soon. But mm-hmm. at that point, I was kind of getting away with it. Um, but at this time, I also had this deep anxiety starting to build up because I knew what I what I was doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um so I could just, I could feel this just super deep-seated anxiety starting to build because, you know, I'm lying to my friends back in Kentucky about what's going on. I know what I'm doing is wrong. Um, I'm lying to my parents and saying, oh, I picked up an extra shift, but I'm really out, you know, fucking around with my boyfriend at the time doing pills. Um so while I was able to keep it up, I, I, it's like in the back of my head, I knew like, I can't, this isn't like, I can't keep this up. Yeah. Um, all of my relationships at that time were all based on drug use. All my friends that were a good influence on me were all back down in Kentucky. Um, my boyfriend was using, my coworkers were using, my friends were using, um, and addicts tend to, be very codependent, whether it be with relationships or friendships. And that's when that started to develop too. Um, Very codependent and um, conditional friendships. Like if one of us were to stop, I don't know if we'd be friends and it's kind it's very transactional, um, which at the time seems normal, but you know, it's, it is what it is. That's kind of, that's kind of the relationships you make when you're in addiction um, uh, I don't know how, but I was able <laughs> to raise my GPA and I was able to go back to the four-year university. Um, and I went back and, um, I was able to stay clean from pills. And to be honest, I think it's just because I had no access to them. Right. There was nothing in my mind telling me I'm going to be clean and sober. It was like, well, I can't get them anymore. So did you end up quitting that job when you went back to school? I did. And they okay. knew that. That, yeah. that was always the plan. Like, I'm here for a semester to work, get my GPA up. So they knew it. That was always the plan. Did you stay with the boyfriend? Uh, we tried. Okay. And... I think because I was picked up and taken out of that situation that I was able to kind of pull it together a little bit. And he was not um, by no fault of his own. Um, He was just kind of left there in that situation and he continued to use and it just it didn't work. Yeah. Um, And to be honest, I really don't remember. I don't remember how it ended or how we broke up. Um, We did end up breaking up. Okay. Um, So I went back to college I did the exact same things as I was doing the first time around. I was just drinking and partying, um, doing drugs, not going to class. Um, But this is the time when I had the first thought of, I don't know how, but I'm different than everyone else. I don't know how these people, we just had a night of like railing lines and doing shots and they're just able to get up and go to class the next day. Like, I don't know how, but I'm different. I can't just do that. Like in my mind, it's like, how are you guys like doing school when there's so much fun to be had? It was like school got in the way of like having fun. Yeah. So like you couldn't balance it. No, I I had zero balance. And it seemed like all my friends had this perfect balance of, you know, having fun on the weekends. But then, you know, when Monday comes, it's time to, you know, 
it's time to be a student. It's time to get to work. And I just, I could not do that. Um, so I failed out of school again. And I, I think I dropped out before I could get kicked out. Um, so I came home again. And at this point, I'm like, I don't know what to do because college is done. That's my second major fuck up in life. So I'm kind of at a low point. Um, I went back to my bikini barista job. Um, a few of the same people were there, a few new people. Um, within a week, I was using again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I can't blame anyone but myself. I want, I was excited. I got off the plane when I came home from college. I could like smell like the drugs and the proximity. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I could feel like, oh my God, they're close. Like, and it, that's the, all I was thinking coming yeah, back like home. Yeah, you were ready. I was ready. Um, I reconnected with um, my boyfriend before I left the second time I reconnected with him. Um, And then this is when I was introduced to heroin for the first time. And I still remember this story. Like this could have happened yesterday. I was working an afternoon shift, so it was very slow. I really had nothing to do. Uh, One of my regulars came through and he got... um, he got his like, you know, strawberry banana smoothie and he goes to pay and he's like, oh man, I don't have anything to tip you with. And I said, that's fine. Like you come here every day. Just, you know, give me next time. And he goes, no, no, no. I got something for you. So he pulls out a little, it was a um, lottery ticket. He had a lottery ticket and it was full of heroin and he opened it up and gave it to me. And I said, what's that? And he looked at me like I was the stupid one and said, it's heroin. Like, I'm like ah, mm-mm. no, I'm good. Um, and that was the first time I ever remember true being scared of trying something. Um, and I was like, no, 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 I'm good. Just take it. And he's like, you know, no, nah, take it. It was like, God, like two people fighting over, um, like, who's going to pay the bill at dinner? Like, no, nah, take it. No, I'm good. Yeah. So he put it on the windowsill for me because it was a drive through So he laid it on the windowsill. I didn't touch it. I went back to whatever I was doing. But it was like I could see it in the corner of my eye and I'm thinking, do I really want to like, this is, you know, this is something I never said I would do. Um, and being an addict is full of, full of nevers that you end up breaking. Like I'm never gonna, I'm never going to try heroin or, I, you know, I, I, I snort it, but I'm never going to shoot it. I'm never going to steal it. And it's, it's just a string of nevers that you al- almost always end up breaking. Um, so I ended up trying it. Did you do like the one that what he gave you? Yeah, what he gave me, the one that was on the windowsill. I ended up trying it. That was my switch moment. Okay. Um, That was, I don't, just something flipped. And I was like, so that's it. (laughs) Did you try by yourself? I was. I was in there by myself. We worked uh, one at a time. Okay. Which uh, was how so many people were able to get high because you're in there for six hours by yourself. There's no cameras or anything in there. You're able to just sitting yeah. there and get high so did you snort it i did and how did you like how do you know how much or you don't i did no i didn't know i okay. just i did a really really little amount and i figured you know i'm on pills yeah like i have a little bit of a tolerance so i did just a teeny teeny amount and that was all that it took i did you know just a little bit um and i felt great did like, it hit right away no, it didn't. Because I remember sitting there thinking, like, this this sucks. Like, yeah. why do people do this? But I right. sat there and you start to – you feel it kind of, like, in your stomach and it kind of, like, a warmth just, mm-hmm. like, takes over you. And I remember I'm warm and fuzzy. 
Um, asshole customers aren't bothering me. I'm getting my closing duties done like in record time. I got out of here at 5.03 instead of 5. I'm like, this is great. Yeah. Like, no wonder people do this. This is awesome. Um, and I worked on that little lottery ticket he gave me. I was working on that for like weeks. I would mm-hmm. just, it was like my special, it was like my own little secret that I yeah. had. It was like my little secret weapon that I was, you know, taking little bits from for like a week. Um, and once it was done, naturally, I'm like, well, that's done. I want more. Right. You know, a normal person would say, well, that was fun while it lasted. But no, I was like, I want more. Um, and like I said, I had um, reconnected with my boyfriend at the time. And he had gone through the progression of um, – he was on heroin by this point. He had gone through the progression of pills to heroin. Um, I don't know a single addict – that just woke up one day and said, I want to do heroin today. Yeah. It's just not the way it works. And I think if you were to ask any other addict, they wouldn't be able to name one person that just picked up heroin. Um, like you're saying that it kind of like leads to that it's over time. almost, I would say like 99% of the time, it's a progression from prescribed opioids okay. to street heroin. Um, you start with, you know, Oxy's, Percocet. Those are expensive right. and they're hard to find. Um, and you build up a super high tolerance to them. And then when someone introduces you to heroin, it's cheaper, it's everywhere, and it's stronger. Mm-hmm. So any addict, why would you not, right. you know? And so at this time, um, we are like into the opioid epidemic in this country. Um, so pills became harder and harder to find. And so when you take pills away it allows for dealers to step in and say hey i got this for you instead and that's exactly what happened so i became pretty much a regular heroin user for the next maybe six months i was introduced to um my dealer at the time which sounds weird but again i kind of like group like parts of my life into who did i know who was my dealer at that time what was i doing so this is around fall Um, and I decided I wanted to start cosmetology school. So I did do hair school. Um, and I started hair school in the fall with a full blown heroin slash pill addiction. Um, I don't know what part of me thought that that was a good idea or that I could sustain that. (laughs) Um, but I was able to, I held it together for maybe like nine months and I'm and looking back to what I was using, who was selling it to me, I was doing 100% fentanyl. I didn't know it at the time, but knowing what I know now, that was straight fentanyl, uh, which is so dangerous. Um, I would do a little amount that big and I would be knocked on my ass for four hours. Yeah. Like I would wake up hours later and Which wasn't happening all over when, you were, again. when you took it the first time. No. And right. then, so it was stronger. Yeah. And it was, um, it was gray. And a lot of people don't realize that fentanyl has a, it's, it's like a gray color. Um, and so I was doing straight fentanyl for months and months and months. Um, so by maybe I'm coming towards the end of cosmetology school, getting high is a full-time job. Um, 
I'm working at a salon part-time making crap money that's not enough to support my habits. So I have to spend my days figuring out how to get money, which means school got in the way of my full-time job of getting money and getting to the city and getting high. At this point, one of my best friends showed me um, how to go to Baltimore and get high. Um, Baltimore has one of the if not the largest, if it's not the largest, one of the largest open air drug markets in the country. Um, So when you go there, you don't have to know someone. You don't have to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm 10 minutes away. Where do you want to meet? Oh, let's go to 7-Eleven. You just have to drive there and they will find you. You just need to drive through West Baltimore and they will flag you down and they they will literally find you. They know how to pick people out. That person wants drugs. Um, it's crazy. It is. It's the I remember witnessing it for the first time. Like this is insane. Um, my friend drove me there. He said, "Keep your windows open. Don't bump your music. Don't make eye contact with anyone that I that I'm not telling you to make eye contact with. Don't look down alleys. Um, just keep your eyes ahead of you. I will tell you who to make eye contact with." And I was terrified. It's like what and. I was like, what are we doing? (laughs) I'm to the point where I'm putting myself in these dangerous situations and for what? Yeah. You know, and that just, again, started a cycle of putting myself in stupid situations. Right. For what? And, you know, that's just, that's what you do, unfortunately. I was going to say, like, I think that, unfortunately, that's kind of like your safety becomes the least of your concern. Absolutely. I did not care. Um. And I've had family say, like, well, weren't you scared? Aren't you scared to go there? Like, aren't you scared meeting with these people? And it's the chemistry of your brain really does change when you're in the throes of addiction. That's just like the farthest thing from your mind. Um, there was one time I was, um, this is such an like awful story. <laughs> I was um, waiting uh, to meet my guy. I was in West Baltimore. I was in my car on a street corner and um, I rolled up and he gave me my stuff and I said, hey, hey, this one's really short. Like, look at that. It's like half full. And he said, okay, you're right. You're right. Let me go grab you another one. So he left. And as I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs, I hear gunshots behind me. I'm just kind of on my phone and I hear pop, pop, pop. And I could smell it immediately I could I didn't know that you could smell when a shooting happens it's like um it's like smoke and the first thought to a normal person should be I gotta get the hell out of here my first thought was shit he has my drugs right like what am I gonna drive off and leave my drugs here and so I sat there and waited and I'm sitting there like okay let me count to 15 and if he's not back I'll go okay let me count to 15 again let me count to 60 he came back, but... Um, so it wasn't him that got shot. No, it was okay. not him. Thank God. <laughs> no, he came back. He, I remember it so vividly. He threw it in the window. He was running. He threw it in the window and kept going. And I was like, all right, cool. Now I can go. That's crazy. Now I can leave. Oh, my God. Yeah. So by the time I finally was able to get out of there, they had already blocked off the street. First responders were already on the scene. Um, I think about this cop, this lovely lady <laughs> every day they had the street blocked off and i'm just trying to get out of there at this mm-hmm. point I'm, i just want to go 
And she said, like, no, no one's getting out of here. You're in a crime scene right now. We just blocked off the street. And I just gave her this eye contact, like, help. Yeah. <laughs> and she waved me through and I was able to go. And I think she knew what was going on. Like, this girl was just in the wrong place at the wrong yeah. time. Um, so I was able to go. And I think back to that, like, how ridiculous is that? My first instinct should have been to put my seatbelt on and get out of there, not sit there and wait for my drugs to be delivered to me. Yeah. Um, but I think too, like like we were saying, I feel like when you're in that state, that that is your main concern and that is your yeah. most full-time job. So it it's is. Like, and the thing is too, that's a reason why addiction is so bad and so sad because it's like everything else around you that once was important, like your safety and the, mm-hmm. your loved ones and your jobs, all that, none of that, all that kind of like, disappears mm-hmm. it, like all that matters is the drug like mm-hmm. people i mean i'm sure you know people will do anything for it yeah so it's like because it's an addiction yep and your brain changes it's yeah. like things that were once so important to you just don't matter and and we're you know we're still trying to figure out that process of you know you it's so weird you your priorities change you age regress right um it's said that you stop progressing mentally at the age that you start really like doing drugs that will affect your brain Mm -hmm. like you know hardcore using and um I went to rehab for the first time at I don't you know maybe early 20s and I didn't notice it and then as I'm getting older and I'm getting clean I'm starting to realize my God, I have the mentality of a 19-year-old. Like I'm 24 and I'm acting like I'm in high school. And that was a a wake-up call. That was scary when I realized that, oh my God. Right. And it's even scarier seeing, you know, other people in treatment that are, you know, approaching their 40s that have been getting high for 20 years. So there's these, you know, 40-year-old men and women that have the mentality of 19, 20-year-olds and it's really shocking to see. Yeah. It's almost like it like puts like a, a stop on everything. It does. Like, and then yeah. it, it just – it puts your brain on pause. And it takes years to fix it. Okay. So I figured out how to go to Baltimore. And I had figured out they have this crazy open-air drug market where you can literally pull up in your car and you do the transaction through the window. Um, so we were doing that. And this is when I first had – uh, the introduction to IV use, um, and which is what, like IV, like shooting, okay. yeah. So shooting heroin, yes. Okay. Well, um, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> so I had asked my friend. I said he, my friend, um, I won't say his name, but my friend, he was the first IV user I had ever met. Um, I, he was the first person I ever saw shoot up. And it, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was like, oh, my God, you see this in movies and on right. TV. But I, I can't believe I'm seeing this in front of me. Um, and after hanging out with him for so long, um, I said, I want to try it. Like, I want to see what all the fuss is about. And for addicts, there's an unspoken rule that you should never be the person to give someone their first needle. Mm-hmm. Um, one, selfishly. You don't want to be responsible for that. You don't want that hanging over your head. And is that just because it's like taking the next step kind right. of deeper into it? Right. So because it's more it's more intense and serious than it snorting is. it. Absolutely. Like on my end, I don't want to be responsible for that. I yeah. don't want that over my head. On your end, 
I'm about to ruin your life right. by giving someone their first needle. And that's the kind of the unspoken rule. You don't just don't be that person. Yeah. So the first time I asked him, he said, no, no, you don't want this. Trust me. Like, it's not fun. You don't want this. And, um, and I, I can't remember how I ended up convincing him to do it, but he, I convinced him to shoot me up for the first time. Um, and, I did a speedball. So I mixed heroin and cocaine together and shot that for the first time. And it was nuts. I remember um, he did it. He took the needle out and he handed me a pillow. And I was like, what do I need? He's like, you're going to want this. And I was like, all right. So I took the pillow from him. I'm not feeling anything. He said, okay, well, maybe you have low blood pressure. Get up, run around and get your blood pumping. And I did. I stood up and I kind of jogged in place and I felt it and I went, oh my God. I like grabbed onto the table. I was like, oh my God. And I grabbed a pillow and just, you know, just sit there and feel it's, it was one of the most intense physical things I have ever experienced. So you're just sitting there like feeling it. Yeah. I couldn't do anything but just like. Sit in it. Like feel it. Yeah. I couldn't talk. I couldn't move. And then it finally started to wear down. And my first thought was like, let's do it again. Really? Like, that How was awesome. How long do you think it lasted? Like the feeling? So a cocaine high, like an IV cocaine high, it lasts seconds. Okay. Like, so it's quick. It's quick. You feel that initial rush of like, whoa, and then it, it's gone. Um, IV heroin, you feel that initial rush and it's a very, um, it's a shorter come down. So it's, it's not it's kind of hard to explain. It's, and you start that here, right? Mm-hmm. Like right in your arm? Okay. Yeah. And then like, it's kind of over time, but if like you use the that vein too much that you go to other areas, right? right. Okay. Um. So, yeah. And then I was at a point I had used up this arm. I had used up this arm. I had used up here. I had used up over here. And then I, um, I mean, I luckily I think that's where I ended up getting clean. Yeah, I stopped in my arms, thank God. But I definitely know people to shoot up in their neck, to right. shoot up in and their, like their feet. Toes. Yeah, yeah. Their feet. yeah. Um, I've seen. I think there's like a major vein in like your crotch area that you can shoot it to, and I've seen people do that. It's nuts. Yeah. Um. So did you do it again after that first? So I did. Like right after. Right after I was like, okay, well, since I did cocaine and heroin together i want to do a shot of cocaine and then i want to do a shot of heroin so i did because i wanted to see how each one felt mm-hmm. it was like a sign a fucked up science experiment right so i did a shot of each and i decided i like coke better i think that's what we're gonna go with so i started using cocaine intravenously which you don't you don't hear about i was gonna say i don't even think i yeah. knew that it's like with my circle everyone's doing it everyone was you know if you weren't doing just Coke, you were mixing it in with your dope shots. Okay. Um, I was just doing straight Coke. <laughs> so, and it's so up and down. You become a crazy person. Mm-hmm. And when you come down from an IV Coke high, you fiend immediately. It's like... Like I gotta get more. I gotta get more. It's Which like is crazy it's irrational. It's so short, yeah, right? it's, it's an irrational like panic. Mm-hmm. Like I remember one time we had done the last of the coke, but I didn't know it was the last of the coke. 
So I had come down and I said, all right, let me do another one. He goes, what do you mean? That was the end of it. I don't think I've ever had a meltdown like that. Like yeah. just what, what do you mean? Like I, 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 it's the weirdest feeling. It's the most intense, irrational, crazy, like fiending for more. Um, and so because I was so like up, down, up, down all the time, I was going up with Coke and then I would come down with heroin to, to kind of ease that like crash. Like I was up and down. It ended me up in the psych ward. Um, How long do you think that you did that for? Oh, God. Um, probably a summer. Okay. Like a summer every day. And were you working at this point? Um, at this point, I had been kicked out. I had been kicked out of cosmetology school okay. I had, because I had missed so many days that they were like, all right, you missed so many days in a row, you're out. Like, you can't miss 10 days of school and then we just let you back in like nothing happened. So your days mainly were drugs. This is all I did. I okay. was lying to my parents saying that I was in school all day, but really I would leave my car at school. So if anyone drove by, they would see my car in front of the school. My friend would pick me up. We would hustle up some money, we would get to the city, go back to his house, get high all day, and then I would go home. That's all we did every single day. Loved it. I Mm -hmm. loved it. Like, I didn't like the bad parts where it's like, oh, you know, I'm dope sick. I feel like shit. But it's like, that was a pretty good life to me at that time, (laughs) like doing nothing but getting high all day. And how old were you, you think, at this point? Um, I had maybe just turned 21. Okay. So I think I was 21. Um, and I'm 28 now. So this is, you know, it doesn't, you know what? It doesn't seem like that long ago, but right. it, it is. It's that long ago. Um, I ended up in the psych ward and I don't, I don't remember getting there was to that be like totally your honest. parents doing? Or? I don't remember. Okay. Um, I think it's because I knew that I needed help. But I was not ready to admit it to myself. And right. I wasn't ready to admit it to any of my friends, any of, you know, my family. And I think I kind of used it as like, you know, I got to get somewhere, but I can't just go to rehab. Right. Um, and I was there for, gosh, maybe a week. Um, I was in the psych ward for a week. And then this is around the time um, where my mom started getting sick. My mom started having health issues. Um, and my mom, she had MS. Um, she had a lot of stomach issues. So she had been ignoring this for a long time because it's, you know, if any time she would go to the doctor, they'd be like, oh, it's a symptom of your MS. So anytime something came up, she'd be like, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I get out of the psych ward. I, I don't think I'm working at this time I think I just moved back in with my dad and was just just being Mm -hmm. and that's really the only way to describe it um and my mom was diagnosed with cancer she had um stage four metastatic gallbladder cancer so by the time they found it um it was in her liver um and for lack of a better term they gave her a death sentence they said there's we can try we can you know we can give you chemo and the medications, but that's really all we'd be doing is buying you time. But we can try. Mm-hmm. And so, my, of course, my mom was like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to try. Um, and um, I had had a conversation with my dad 
Um, the same thing happened to our neighbor. He was diagnosed with lung cancer and they gave him about two years. He was gone within six months. Yeah. So I told my dad, you know, that's my biggest fear. Like, what if the same thing happens to her? What if, what if she's gone within six months? And he goes, well, and he's like, I don't know. I don't, you know, what yeah. do you even say to that? Um, she was gone in three. Wow. She was diagnosed October and she was gone in January. So it was very quick. Um, at this point I wasn't in school. I had no job. I had nothing to do all day, but either sit there and crave or sit there and actually like, all right, let me go get high. And, you know, I don't know if my mom had made the conscious decision, like she's just got to do her own thing. And I, there's nothing I can do. Or I don't know if it was that, or she had, you know, her own stuff going on, but either way, I was not in the forefront of their problems, rightfully so. Like, the last thing they need to worry about is me. Um, And I completely took advantage of that. I completely took advantage of the fact that they, my mom and my stepdad weren't home all the time. They weren't really focused on me. Um, And uh, that's kind of the way I wanted it because nobody was really like... You can do what you want. I can do what I wanted. and it, you know, once I got out of the psych ward, I was clean for a little bit, but the, I just remember I had nothing to do all day, but sit and have cravings because right. I had no job. I had nothing to do. Right, and I, nothing and to distract you. There's nothing to distract me from the fact that like, I'm trying to stay sober. My mom has cancer. Yeah. Like I don't, so I, I, I was using again at this point. Um, my mom passed away january 2017 and my first rehab was april 2017 okay so in those three months was like train wreck like you know i was trying not to feel i was trying not i was actively trying not to grieve i'm like i don't want this um so it was just iv cocaine use i was smoking heroin at this point you can do that (laughs) so i was smoking heroin at this point is that like the same is it what would you say is like the worst way to do it? Um, like, are, is each way like a different, I guess, reaction or feeling, or yeah, it all hits the and same? So it's hard. It's hard to describe. So, um, someone introduced me to you. Hey, you know you can smoke heroin. I tried it. I'm like, this is not half bad. And so I would introduce it to other okay. people. And, so it's just like different ways. Yeah, to use. Um. I would say, in my opinion, I would say, like, a starter way to do it would be snorting it. And then I would say smoking is probably, smoking it is probably as close to shooting it as you can get without actually shooting it. Because it's smoke and you hold it in, it hits you immediately. Okay. Um, But at this point, you were just doing whatever. I was doing whatever I could get my hands on. Um, I landed myself in rehab April 2017. So there was a three-month period where it was like, um, I wasn't speaking to my family. I was hiding from my dad at every chance I get. I would never want to go home. I would sleep at friends, at boyfriends. I would sleep in my car just to avoid going home. Right. Um, I 
don't know. I really don't know why. I think it's because he knew what was going on. And the second I see him and face him, this is all going to come right. crashing down. And I don't want it to come crashing down yet. Um, at this point, I had completely like fucked my relationship with my family. Um, they didn't look at me at the funeral. They didn't speak to me at the funeral. I sat by myself at the funeral. I was the first one to go in and I just picked a seat thinking that people, you know, I would pick my seat and people would just kind of file in and like, I guess we're sitting here. They went to the clear opposite side of the room and said, we're not going over there. Um, my dad sat with me, bless his heart. But, um, and that was a huge wake up call that like these people want nothing to do with me. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a wake up call, but I was also like these assholes. Right. You know, my brain didn't um, comprehend that. Like, this is my aunt's sister. This is my grandma's daughter. I'm like, this, this is my mom, you assholes. Mm-hmm. And I just I couldn't, you know, it was a very me, me, me like yeah. time in my life. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with the way they handled that. And like I but I understand why. And it took me years to even reconnect with them and kind of come to terms with like, okay, this is why they did what they did. Yeah. Um, uh, I ended up in rehab April, 2017. I was only there for two weeks um, because my insurance wouldn't pay for anymore. That's the American healthcare system at work. Um, I was there for two weeks. I got out um, and I went to my first recovery house in Annapolis recovery housing in Annapolis for women is pitiful. Yeah. It's so bad. So you're living there, right? Yes. Okay. Um, I got about maybe 90 days clean um, and I relapsed immediately. And when you were getting clean, the withdrawal from that, was that pretty intense or? You know what? It wasn't. Okay. Um. And I, I don't know why. Just that first time I went to treatment, it wasn't that bad. So it was more like the challenge was actually staying yes, away from it. Yes, it was much more okay. of a mental challenge than it was a physical Got challenge. Um, and, you know, I kind of – I almost wish that it had been worse because maybe that would have, like – been like I don't want to like I don't want, I don't want to do yeah. that ever again but it was so like I had fun there <laughs> like right. you know I was finally a little bit more clear-headed I I made some friends that I still talk to mm-hmm. um so I was in a recovery house I got maybe 90 days and I relapsed and I I real I don't know why you know I wish I had some kind of something that happened and that's why I went back out but like I think I it's just, addiction I yeah there's yeah. no rhyme or reason. Right. Um, like, I feel like if it was easy, people wouldn't, it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. You know? And, you know, so I relapsed after about 90 days. Um, I moved back in with my dad. You know, I told my dad that I was going on a podcast and he said, with all due respect, I'm probably not going to watch it. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. And he said, you know, just if there's one thing that I want you to say, just tell tell them that I never gave up on you. No. And I was like, okay, I'll tell them. But Make sure that they know. <laughs> <laughs> he really didn't. You know, yeah. this whole time, I'm treatment, back with my dad. Psych ward, back with my dad. You know, he 
parents kick out their adult kids, their adult addict kids all the time. I was going to say too, everybody has a different way of parenting. Yeah. You know, and I think some people, I mean, you hear stories where the parents are, are strict and they do everything they can and it still doesn't work. Right. You know what I mean? So I just feel like, and like you said, your mom was going through a lot and mm-hmm. everybody does it in their own way. But I think the main thing is support because if you didn't have support, I feel like that would be even worse. Yeah. You know, and now a word from our sponsor. All right, guys, as we get older, unfortunately, our hair starts to thin, at least mine has. And I don't really specifically know if it's because of aging or because of stress or maybe just everything combined, but it has happened, especially I notice it when I put my hair in a ponytail and I definitely started to feel a little bit nervous and scared about it, but rest assured, you are not alone. I experience it. And actually, one in every two women experience hair thinning. It is very, very common. That being said, I have started using Nutrafol's newest hair supplement, which is 100% vegan and has natural ingredients to target the root causes of hair thinning and to promote healthy hair growth. No matter what the cause is for the lack of volume or the hair thinning, Nutrafol takes a whole body approach with their vegan supplement and they help you feel better and look better. Along with all of the amazing benefits that Nutrafol has to offer, it has been so easy to add it into my daily routine. I literally take my four pills every night with dinner and I know that with consistent daily use, I am promoting visibly way less hair shedding and I am on the path to thicker, longer, and faster growing hair. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code INSANE. Find why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code INSANE. That's Nutrafol.com promo code INSANE. Now back to the episode. I don't, he didn't know what to do either. Yeah. But it, he was there. Mm-hmm. And that's really all you can do. Right. You just you be there. That's like literally all you can do. Um, I moved back in with him and I, I started another job at this time. Um, very soon after starting, I realized that one of my coworkers was like a severe alcoholic. And my fucked up brain, I used this to my advantage because I was flying under the radar. Because yeah. everyone was focused on, oh, she's showing up <laughs> drunk to work again. And, oh, she had to go to treatment again. And she's a mess. And I was completely flying under the radar. I was working, getting high, and no one knew a thing. Uh, no one knew until I told them. I literally called in one morning and said, hey, um, I'm not coming in. I'm going to go to rehab today. So yeah, have a good day. I'll see you in 30 days. And they were completely blindsided. So I was, you know, holding it together. Went to treatment again. Uh, and that was, you decided to go back. I, You know what? I think it was my dad. Okay. I think it was, he was like, you're going yeah. like tomorrow. I don't remember what led up to it, but I remember right. it was like, you're going. Um, I went back to, it was Hope House. Shout out Hope House. Um, they're amazing. They do amazing things there. I'm a frequent flyer miles at Hope House. Um, this is where I met my daughter's dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met in treatment. <laughs> um, it, that was the first time I was in treatment. I was there for uh, just after Thanksgiving. I was there for Christmas and I was there for New Year's. Um, and I just, it was, it was bad. And that's, um, 
that time I did have really bad withdrawals. Um, I showed up, they, they give you a drug test when you get there, obviously. And this is when fentanyl is really starting to become a problem. Fentanyl's mm-hmm. hitting the streets. I tested positive for fentanyl when I got there. They stripped me. They took my clothes. They took my bag, everything. And they threw everything in the wash. They threw me in the shower. It was like, you know, it blew my mind to see people being so careful around someone who's even come in contact with fentanyl right. while I'm like putting this in my body on a daily yeah. basis. Um, uh, the withdrawal was awful. I don't think I left my bed in maybe four days. So do you think the difference between the first rehab and then this one was the fact that there was fentanyl in your system? I think so. I think that's really the only thing I can think. And then, and it is, it's worse with fentanyl and it, and, um, you go through, uh, withdrawals quicker. Okay. You know, if you were to do pure heroin and you stopped, you could probably maybe, maybe go like 12 to 24 hours without really feeling like, ooh, okay. With fentanyl, you feel it like after six hours. Okay. You get, you start to get sick. Uh, so were your withdrawals, it was like throwing up and all of that? Like or? throwing up, sweating, hot and cold. You can't sleep, which I think is the worst part yeah. because you can't even, you know, sleep through all of this. You can't sleep. Um, your muscles ache. You can't stop moving you feel like you just have you know you can't stop moving your arms and your legs um I rem- I literally took my sheets and I tied my legs together and I like tied my legs together and I threw the sheet it was a bunk bed so I threw the sheet up in there and I pulled it up to like raise my legs and like hold them together it was the only way I was like gonna stay still um you just you can't walk you can't move I had to you know the TAs had to come into my room every, you know, couple days and make sure I was alive and change yeah. my sheets. Um, and that was, you know, set me straight for a little bit because I'm like, I never want to feel this way again. How long do you think that lasted, the withdrawals? Like four days. And okay. that's typical. It's usually like if you can get over that, three to four days of like severe withdrawals, you can probably make it out through the other end. But the problem is trying to do that in a non-controlled environment when you're, you know, if you try and do that at home, what's to stop you from being like, fuck this, I don't want to do this anymore. Right, especially if you're miserable. Yeah, if you're miserable and you know the only thing standing between you and feeling normal is going and, you know, getting high, you're going to go get high. It's like, I I can't imagine a person that would have the willpower to do, I mean, I'm sure some people do as people like do it, but yeah. I, I would never be able to have that kind of willpower. Um, finished up a 30-day stint at Hope House. Um, I moved back to Annapolis and went back to um, the recovery housing in Annapolis. Um, and again, one of the biggest issues I have with just the recovery housing for women is awful in Annapolis. You either go to... Um, house a or house b there's like two i guess not companies but Mm -hmm. like two different people that own houses the first one is like very (laughs) strict um sometimes to a fault um you know five meetings a week you need to have a job which is not a bad thing obviously but you need to have a job five meetings a week 8 p.m curfew um 
And it's a very one size fits all approach yeah. to recovery. I haven't been to a meeting in years, like five years, maybe. Yeah, I haven't been to a meeting in like five years. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not the way I stay sober. So it wasn't very personal. It's not. Okay. It's a one size fits all. Like if you want to be clean, this is what you do. You come home by eight. You work 34 hours a week. You um, you go to five meetings a week, but not CDA. You have to go to NA or AA. Like, and then recovery house B, it's a flop house. Like, I don't know anyone that's gone there with the intention of like, I'm going to go here and be clean. It's like, I'm right. going to go there and get high with my friends. Those are your two options. Yeah. So, you know, if I, I really, I don't have a desire to really work in the recovery field, but if I was ever going to, that would be the first thing I do was open up a happy medium in Annapolis. Yeah. Um, so I was at uh, recovery house A. Got kicked out almost immediately. So you're not, they don't require you to stay there. No, okay. you don't have to. I mean, you could go home. Like okay. I could, I could have gone back to my dad, but it just it made the most sense. Like, right. let me. Obviously, what I'm doing isn't working. Let me try something yeah. new. Um. Oh, I remember what it was. I was on Vivitrol at this time. Um, Vivitrol is it's a big shot in your ass that's like a you know a needle this big and it's um it's an opioid blocker so when you you take it once a month and you can't feel the effects of drugs um it works on like the pleasure centers in your brain which it is a miracle drug for some people um it was not for me it was, like it, it deals with the pleasure centers in your brain so you can't get high but you also can't get pleasure from anything not from food, not from sex, not from music, like nothing. So nothing was bringing me happiness at this time. So did you feel depressed? Yes. Okay. I was in like a dark hole. And I got faced with like a moral dilemma. Like, okay, I'm in this dark, dark place. And I know that it's because of this drug. Do I want to stop taking this drug and start to, you know, even myself out? But I know myself, if I stop taking this, I'm getting high. Right. So it's like, what do I do? Like, what? And I stopped taking it because I'm, I'm like, I don't want to off myself. So I stopped taking it. Um, and I got high again. <laughs> so was this when you were still staying in the house? Yeah. Okay. Um, so they weren't, when you're staying in this house, they don't, they're not really like monitoring what you're no, doing. No, they are. I was getting kicked out and let back in over and over okay. and over again. So when again. you were getting kicked out, that's when you were going and getting high Exactly. Okay. And then so they, I mean, as many criticisms, criticisms as I have, they do make it so you can get back in. It's not like you get high, you get kicked out, that's it. Yeah. Um, you have to reach back out to them within 24 hours and say, hey, I got kicked out the other night. I went back in. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you have to pretty much be on your own for a couple days. And then after that third day or something, if there's a spot left, because they'll fill your spot. They've got women in rehab that are waiting to get into right. houses. If that spot is open and they can find one for you and you can pass a drug test, they let you back in. Okay. And that's what I was doing over and over and over again. I was getting kicked out and let back in. Okay, well, we're going to let you back in on probation. Okay, this time we'll let you back in, but you have to do 90 meetings in 90 days and you have a 7 p.m. curfew and blah, 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 blah. 
so they were trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were working with me, but um, but once I got back in, um, this was like my first long stretch of sobriety, a, a point in my life where I felt like I wasn't clinging to sobriety. I felt like like I felt normal. Yeah. Um, and then I found out I was pregnant. Um, so I found out I was pregnant, and um, this is my daughter's dad at this time. So we decided, you know, I guess let's move in together. So we found a townhouse up in Frederick um, with the sole purpose of, all right, we need to, you know, start working on thinking about, you know, a baby coming. As soon as we moved into that townhouse, I miscarried. Um, So I know that it wasn't immediate, but it was something that like planted a seed and I didn't want to deal with, and I wanted to just move on. Um, but both of us ended up using again. And I think it's, we just, we rushed. We had way too much freedom way too early. We should yeah. have both still been in recovery houses at that mm-hmm. time. Um, towards the end, and this is another era that I'm thinking mm-hmm. of, is the time when we lived in Frederick. Um, towards the end of this, I ended up getting MRSA. Um, what is it? It's a medic basically a staph infection that's completely resistant to antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, I got MRSA and I don't even know how I got it in my armpit. They think it was from like a, I sat my razor down and, and picked it up it. and yeah. shaved. Okay. Um, I was in the hospital for 10 days, maybe. Um, I had to go in for like emergency surgery to get it fixed. I was on crazy. I had like two IVs in each arm with two bags going into each IV. So I had like one, two, three, four, five, six, like eight bags of antibiotics going into my body at one time. Um, and obviously I wasn't paying rent yeah. while I was in there. I wasn't working. Um, so we ended up losing the house, um, which put, I'm trying to think of like a name that I can call him. um so that put um my daughter's dad that put him on the street we didn't have a house Um, was he still using at this time he was he was still using um i stopped using while i was in the hospital obviously because i was in the hospital i wasn't you know going anywhere but that left him basically to his own devices. He lost the house or we lost the house. He's, you know, he's not from here. He's from Massachusetts. So he has no family here. All his family's either in um, Massachusetts or Puerto Rico. Um, he's got no one here. No, all his friends are, you know, living in recovery housing. So there's yeah. like, I, dude, I don't know how to help you. It's not like you can just come stay with me. Um, so I moved back in with my dad and I think he... And again, this whole thing is like so cloudy because it's a total blur. This whole time is such a blur because it just seemed like I was in just this ridiculous cycle of like, you know, high gets sober, get high, get sober. And it was just so monotonous and just such in a cycle. Um, I don't even remember where we were living or who we were living with. We weren't living together. Um, I found out I was pregnant again. Um, and that sent him straight to rehab. He was like, well, we're going to have a baby. And which is good though. Which least, is good. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely that like good for him. him. Yeah. In my mind, I, I didn't want to stop getting high. I was like this, you know, in a selfish mindset. I'm like, I don't, like, don't want to stop getting high. I don't yeah. want to stop doing what I'm doing. 
Um, I went in to have an abortion. Um, did he know this? He did. He did okay. know this. Um, they ask you three questions. They say, like, you know, is one, is anyone forcing you to do this? Is this your own decision? Two, do you want to take a picture home, like an ultrasound picture? Three, do you want to know if there's multiples? Um, and so I said, yeah, well, yeah, let me know if there's multiples. Um, and she said, yep, um, I see two of them in there. It was going to be twins. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wow. oh, my God. Um so I was like, I can't do it. Like, I don't know what to do, but I can't do it. So I, they called my dad into the room and I told him. And he, of course he was like, oh, like why? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I was like, look, I know this is what needs to be done. I, I can't do it, at least not today. And he was like, that's fine. We'll go home. We'll talk. We'll come back. Um, I did go back. They did another ultrasound, and we found out that the pregnancy wasn't viable anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a good chance that that's my fault. Yeah. There's a very good chance that that's my fault because I was getting, I wasn't taking care of my body. I was getting high this whole time. Um, they said one of one of the fetuses was not growing enough. And because it stopped growing, sometimes it'll just get absorbed, but mm-hmm. sometimes it will start to affect the other one. And that's what was happening. Okay. So I ended up having to terminate regardless. Um, and, you know, as awful as that was, I'm glad that that was a decision that the universe made for yeah. me because I had no clue what to do. I had no job, no money. I'm living with my parents. I'm a severely addicted to heroin. I'm like, what? I had no clue what I was going to do. So for better or worse, that was a decision that was out of my hands. And I'm, you know, like I said, as awful as it is, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that decision was made by what, the powers that be, whatever's out there. Um, and then... I kept using and that just, you know, sent me into a spiral, like in a lot of introspective thinking, like, what am I doing? I'm getting older. Um, Like, when is it going to stop? When is this going to stop? I could have had this pregnancy and I didn't. And literally all I had to do was just go to treatment. And I didn't because I'm too selfish to think about anything but my wants and my needs and none to the people around me. Um, I got fired from my job. They, at this point, they were so like beside themselves on what to do. They just were like, you're done. Um, And then this brought me back to a point. I have no job. I have nothing to do all day. And it started up again where all I do all day is hustle up some money and get high. And that's all I did. Um, I was... I think we were both in recovery houses at this time and we were both using, but we somehow like didn't get kicked out. I think we were just hiding it. And then around um, October, 2018, I found out I was pregnant and this is the one, this is the one. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I found out I was pregnant. I was on the phone the next day with treatment centers. Like I need to, I need to get into treatment. I don't know. 
you know, I, I can't do this again. Um, I was denied from, I think, three or four different rehabs that said, nah, we're not going to take a, they said, no, we're not going to take a pregnant lady. Um, they just didn't want that responsibility of having to detox someone that's pregnant. So I got denied from four, maybe four different treatment centers. Um, or they told me that I had to go to a detox first and then go in. But I was trying to make this like as quick as possible. Like I didn't want to have to tell my dad, okay, you know, I'm going to rehab, but I have to do this first. And then I have to prove that this and then this can happen. I just wanted to go in there and be like, going to rehab. Bye. Like that's what I wanted. One one fix. And it just, it wasn't happening. Um, And luckily I stayed in touch with one of the counselors at Hope House and I called her. um, I think I called her cell phone. I still had her number and I told her what was going on. Um, And then they called me back later that day and said, okay, you can come. And I am so grateful to her. Her name is Jen. I love her. She's an amazing lady. She has pulled me out of some shitty situations in my life. I love her. Um, So went into, this is my last and final rehab, God willing. This is my last time I was able to do my 30 days. Um, I moved back into recovery housing, probably around, you know, I had 30 days clean and I was like 12 weeks pregnant. Um, I get out, start working at Red Lobster because I'm like, I just need something (laughs) and start working at Red Lobster. Um, and they knew about the pregnancy and they were very cool about it. Like, you know, you work until you can't work anymore. Um, And then at this point, I think I was very pregnant. I moved into um, an Oxford house. Um, An Oxford house is, um, I have nothing but good things to say about Oxford houses. An Oxford house is a very good step. I would say that it's probably like an inpatient rehab, recovery house, Oxford house, you're on your own. Okay. Um, The house has its own bank accounts. We pay our own rent to our own landlord. We buy our own food. We pay our own electricity. We pay our water. Um, We get to decide who moves into the house. So it's not like we don't wake up one day and, oh, I guess we have a new roommate today. We get to decide who comes in. We get get to decide who leaves. and like I said, I have nothing but good things to say about Oxford House. I think moving to an Oxford house is one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. Um, it taught me a lot of um, a lot of responsibility and it right. gets you ready to be on your own because when you're living in like a traditional recovery house, you put your $150 a week in the box and I don't yeah. know, the lights stay on somehow. That's really all there is to do. Uh, let's see. So I was able to move into a women and children's house. Um, and then my daughter was born July, 2019. How long were you in the Oxford house for? Oh gosh. I moved there when I was very pregnant. I think I was like maybe eight coming up on nine months pregnant. Do they have like time limits on those houses? Nope. You can stay for a couple months. You can stay for 20 years. Okay. Like you can stay as long as you want. So the point of it is is what basically like are the, is there any type of structure there or is yes. it more like okay yeah absolutely there's structure um but it's all the structure does not come from like an outside office okay telling you hey you need to do drug tests on everyone today uh, it comes from within the house so we elect 
a president, a treasurer, a comptroller, and everything is handled within the house. And are all the people that are staying there, are they recovering? Uh, yeah, everyone okay. is in recovery. So you have um, like a kind of like a good support group. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so I had my daughter July 2019, um, and she moved into the Oxford house with me. I was able to take her home. Um you know, it was it was great bringing her home, and you know, I'll kind of go into that with having a newborn baby and a recovery house is has its you know ups and downs. But um, uh, we definitely had to deal with um, CPS visits to the house when I first brought her home because um, I'm an addict in recovery. When you have a baby. Um, and I was on uh, Suboxone at the time. That was one of the conditions of getting into treatment was, yes, we'll take you, but you have to go on Suboxone. Um, and Suboxone can be used as like a short-term detox, like we'll, to help you go through the withdrawals. Like we'll give you 10 milligrams Monday, eight on Tuesday, four on Wednesday, six, two, and then, you know, you yeah. taper down. Or it can be used as... Um, like long-term maintenance, like you take eight milligrams a day and it that's just what you do. And so at the time that my daughter was born, I was on Suboxone. Doesn't matter what they're born on. It doesn't matter if you're prescribed it or not, how much, how little. If you are born or if she's born with anything in their system, you get a visit from CPS. Yeah. Um, and it was hard. I mean, you know, at this point I had had a little bit of sobriety and it – you know, the woman was lovely. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> she was nice, but it's hard, you know, when you think you're doing so well and then you see CPS walk through your door to make sure that you have hot water and formula. And it was almost like a slap to the face. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't even know if that's standard that you get a, an actual visit from CPS because sometimes you can get reported and they go, whatever, no, we're not doing anything. Or I don't know if it was one of the nurses or what, but dealt with that um while I loved living in an Oxford house having a baby there you know it's fine for where I was in life but looking back you know it's it's a revolving door of people um someone comes in they're there for a month they relapse they get kicked out we vote someone else new in and, you know, there's like a core group of maybe two or three of us that stayed there. But for the most part, it's people in and out constantly. You never know who's, you know, I mean, we can, we interview and we vote people, but you still never know. Right. Um, the amount of times I've had to like kick someone out and then pack their room up and I'm like, okay, we've got alcohol, we've got needles, you're bringing all this shit into the house. Like this is a women and children's house. I've had to clean out people's rooms all the time and- I find their pills and their drugs in their room. I'm like, oh my God. Like, it just makes you think like, we've got kids here for God's sake. Right. Um, I just always felt like I couldn't trust anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's theft all the time. I don't know why addicts love stealing from each other, but addicts love stealing from each other. Um, there was one time we were hanging out in my room. I had a nice big room. So everyone kind of liked to congregate in there. Um, And one of my roommates was holding the baby and she must've been like less than six months old at this time. She was a baby. Um, And she's, you know, throwing her in the air and they're laughing. And I'm like, oh, how cute. We had to kick her out later that night because she was drunk the whole time. 
And I'm like, oh my God, I just handed my kid off to a drunk person and I had right. no clue because I'm a very trusting person. I don't, you know, and I don't have a radar for yeah. when people are fucked up either. I have right. no ra- – like you could be drunk right now and I'd have no idea. Yeah. So I have no like sixth sense for that. And it made me so like clingy to never, you know, hand her off to anyone because you never know. Right. Um. Uh, I moved into a second Oxford house when I was probably a year into recovery. Um, And I was there for a long, long time. I loved it. Um, I moved there in January 2020. And of course, the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. a couple months later. Um, It was nuts. It was absolutely crazy. Um, Every meeting, like AA meeting, NA moving, moved to Zoom. Um, Rehabs like just weren't taking as much people. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize how much the pandemic affected people in recovery. Um, You can't meet in groups anymore. There goes any kind of like emotional, social support. Um, A huge portion of like our social life is going to meetings. Like that's the people you are friends with. And when you can't do that and you're stuck inside, it's like. It's isolating. Yeah. It's super isolating. And that's a huge trigger for a lot of people is being isolated. The rehabs weren't taking as many people. You had to wait for your COVID test to go through before being admitted. And at this time, this was, you know, March 2020, the COVID test took like they take like three or four Mm -hmm. days at this point a lot can happen in three or four days there you know people are dying like waiting to get into treatment which is the most unfortunate thing ever and i've seen it so many times even before the pandemic you know i've seen so many people that die waiting to get into treatment um you know Wait lists are months long. Um, and like I said, a lot can happen, even in three, four days, a couple right. months. And it's unfortunate. Um, a lot of people didn't even want to go because you have roommates in there. They shoved like four people in a, into a room in there. So nobody wanted to be in close quarters. Oh, and I also wanted to talk about um, when I first got into like my first rehab years ago, I had this mentality that um, I'm cured. Like I went to treatment, I detoxed, I'm cured. I never have to do this ever again. And I found out very quickly that that wasn't the case. Um, And even my, you know, I've been clean and sober for years now. um, And I still still deal with this bullshit all the time of um, this cycle of like starting a job and everything's going good. And then I let it slip. I let it slip that I'm in, you know, in recovery. Um, and everyone's opinion just shifts immediately. I could be the best worker and it just. Like people's opinions around you. Yeah. Um, I worked at a therapist's office, um, when I, I think I had like a year clean at this point and Mm -hmm. I started there. Um, And I was living in an Oxford house at this point. So it's really hard. I guess hide isn't the right word, but it's hard to hide it when you're living in recovery housing. That's where you live. That's what you do. That's a huge portion of your life. It's hard to, 
you know, not talk about it. So I let it slip. Well, I feel like the thing is, is you, it shouldn't have to be something that's hidden because exactly. Which, but and I, I think that because of the world that we live in, and I don't know if it'll ever change. People are so judgmental. Yeah, and everybody wants to think that. Well, if if you if you lived a lifestyle like that, then I'm better than you in a way. Oh my god, yeah. And I think that that's bullshit mm-hmm. because. You are where you are and right. everything that you went through to get to the point mm-hmm. took a lot of work. Yeah, So it it's like, it's part of your life. It's part of your experiences mm-hmm. in life. And I feel like it shouldn't have to be something that's hidden. If anything, I think it makes you stronger yeah. and more powerful mm-hmm. because it's like, yeah, I, I did that. I got through it and look where I am now. With I love that. I it's love true it. though. And it's it's and like, it's annoying. I don't no understand one see, it. Yeah, no one sees it. But like there's that. always something like that. And it's like something smaller, even as like tattoos. It's like, mm-hmm. as you know, it's like people will look at you and have a... A certain mindset because oh she has tattoos why you know what I mean or yeah. like it, it's just crazy to me that because someone you know maybe was an addict or because somebody did this or even like somebody I don't know it could be anything right. I feel like people automatically jump to this judgment of either you're lower than them or you're not capable of as much or, or not as trustworthy. Um, something they anything. see it as um, a moral failing yeah like this is a bad person right uh, right. Can I, I trust this I person? Yeah, I don't think like, that's true at all. I'm not a bad person. I've never been a bad person. Right. I've been I've been a sick person. Yeah. I've been a person that needed help. Yeah. Um. But I don't. I don't think that I've ever been like. I mean, who can even say what makes a good person or a bad right. person? I don't think I. I don't think I'm a bad person. Right. Um. I don't think at this point in my life, I don't think I'm an untrustworthy person. I think you know. But people, that's what yeah, people people find jump out, to. yeah. And um, so, so, of course, I let it slip. And when you say that, yeah. you mean you would just like open up about, yeah, like um, like when people start asking questions, like, oh, where where do you live right now? I'm like, oh, I'm in Linthicum. Um, oh, do you have um, do you live with your boyfriend? No, <laughs> yeah. oh, you don't. But don't you guys have a kid together? Yeah, I have roommates. And I, you have roommates? Well, yeah. And it's like you try and dance around it, right. but like it, it ends up coming out. And sometimes it just doesn't go the way you think when you let it out. Like, okay, well, yes, I live in Linthicum. I live in recovery housing. I live there with my daughter and we're awesome and doing great. And it's, you know, oh, okay. Like, um, So I let that out you know I didn't even let it slip I opened up I opened up to my boss about it because we were just chit-chatting um and then towards the end of the time that I worked there I was on the phone with um a patient and I put him on hold I said okay I just got to grab your chart from upstairs let me put you on hold I'm gonna run upstairs so I go upstairs and I go to looking for his chart and I find my chart and I'm like oh I want to see what's in my my chart I can open it I found a letter dated for my God within my first week mm-hmm. um, saying that um, I don't think Emily would make a great asset to this company because of her drug use. Um, she lives in a recovery house with her daughter and claims she has a year clean. Um, this is a letter that somebody wrote about you. This is my boss after i told her all that my boss wrote to the practice manager yeah um saying that you know 
I'm nodding out at the front desk. Mind you, I had a six-month-old baby at home. She's still not sleeping through the night. She's eating, of course. She's not. She's still eating in the middle of the night. Of course, I come to work and I'm tired. Exhausted, yeah. Um, saying I'm nodding out at the front desk. Um, I was on Suboxone, so I think I took it at work one day. The wrapper was in my file. Like, here's what she takes. Here's the milligrams. Here's how she acts before she takes it. Here's how she acts after she takes it. Um, I think she should be let go due to her drug use. And did they fire you because of that? No, they didn't. Thank God. I think they were like, we're going to have a lawsuit on our hands if we fire this girl. Um, And basically the practice manager wrote back, you know, just talk to her. Right. Ask her, hey, I noticed you're really tired in the morning. Are you okay? Because the explanation would have been, oh, God, yeah, you know, I've got a baby at home. Right. This is my first time going back to work, mm-hmm. you know, after having a baby. That would have been the explanation, and that should have been the end of it. Um, there was also um, another time I um, was answering the phone and – Someone called and he said, hey, is Dr. So-and-so taking um, Suboxone patients right now? And I said, oh, and I'm sorry, he's not uh, He's not taking new patients right now. And this guy like broke down on the phone and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really need help. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, God, I felt bad. And I was like, you know what? Let me take your number. Let me give you a call back. So I went online and I Googled, okay, call this number, call this foundation, Go to a firehouse in Anne Arundel County. They'll get you into basically like here's some things that you can do. I you know if you can't get in here, and I wrote it down on a post-it and I called him back and he said, "Oh my God, thank you so much. I appreciate it." Tossed it, threw it away. I found that post-it in my chart. Like, yeah, look, she's looking. Like, look, she's looking up rehabs and she's right. looking up like ways to get help. It's bullshit. Yeah. And yeah. again, the explanation would have been just that. Like, it was literally not for me. Right. It was for someone else. Um, and, you know, stuff like that. And then every, like, text conversation I had ever had with my boss, like, screenshotted and put in a file. And it, I, I don't think I've ever felt rage like that well, yeah, in my sure. life. Yeah. I... W- I should have quit on the spot is what I should have done. I did not quit on the spot though, but I think I put in my two weeks, maybe like a couple of days later. Like I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that, you know, I'm doing the best I've done in my entire life before drugs or after drugs. Like I'm doing the best I've done. I'm, I am kicking ass at motherhood. I'm, paying my own I just bought a car I'm paying my own car payment I'm paying my own rent I'm paying for my insurance and to just it just felt like someone shit all over that and I think that that's the that's the screwed up part is people don't realize like I mean who knows her reasoning why it could have been Mm -hmm. many different things but at the same time I don't think people realize like that kind of to me it comes back to support Mm -hmm. and if she was genuinely concerned like you said she should have asked but also it's like I don't think people realize, like, like you said, it that can make, especially because even though you had what, like a year mm-hmm. clean, it's just like that can really shit on everything that you've worked so hard mm-hmm. for. Because I feel like even though you had that year, I feel like you're still in a fragile state. Oh, absolutely. So it's like I don't think people realize the impact that their actions can mm-hmm. have on people, and it just it pisses me off because it's like, why, you know? Yeah, and it I 
I was a mess for a while. Right. I just kept going back and forth between angry and sad. And maybe I'm not doing as good as I think I am. Like, I feel like I'm doing great, but maybe right. I'm not. Like the because, judgment of yes, others. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, no one likes being judged. No. And, um, and no one deserves that, too. That's yeah. why it always comes back down to just, like, just people being there. Mm-hmm. And, like, at the end of the day, everybody's going to make their own choices and decisions, whether that's right or wrong, good or bad. Mm-hmm. But... No one, everyone's going through their own shit in mm-hmm. their own way. So it's like to judge others based on that is just fucked up. Mm-hmm. Mind you, this is in my first week of this job too, that right. this letter was written. What could I have done yeah. that was so bad mm-hmm. in my fir- within my first week that you recommend my termination yeah. that quickly? Right. I just, I felt like, you know, and I was out of there mm-hmm. very soon after that. And I, you know, I love the job I'm at now. I love them. Um, but um, I my, I have my boss. She comes in, I don't know, once a week or so. And I have the coworker that I see every single day. And I told her, oh, I'm going on a podcast. And she, I told her, you know, and she knows. Yeah. And she doesn't care. Um, and she's like, oh, that's awesome. And so we were kind of like, we were writing this, basically yeah. kind of, she was helping me outline everything. And uh, my boss comes in, oh, what are you guys doing? And I told her, oh, I'm going on a podcast next month and blah, 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 blah. And she said, oh, what it? So I had, and she already knew that I was right. in recovery, but I had to go, oh, well, I'm just going to go and tell my story. And she said, why would you want people to know that? Like, yeah. Come people on, People have such dude. different mindsets on shit. <laughs> like, I don't, the thing is, is I think that there's a group of, a, a big group of people that think it's easier and better to hide mm-hmm. your flaws. And then there's the group that realizes by being open and sharing them not only can help you, but help yes, so many other people. Absolutely. And I think that it's the fear of judgment. It's mm-hmm. the fear of whatever else. And I think a lot of people, but that's why I'm always so proud of the people that come on mm-hmm. here. Because one, I know for a lot of people, it's their first time speaking in front of a camera, right. mm-hmm. sharing their story mm-hmm. for the public to hear. And also it's just like a lot of people don't have the courage to come and literally be vulnerable and open right. up and say, okay, this is what I've been through. And I'm here now, but it's so yeah. inspiring mm-hmm. and it's interesting and it's, it's real. Like there's yeah. so many people it out is. there that go it's through shit, you know, and I, enough people aren't willing to talk about it, but I feel like if more people opened up and kind of let go of that fear of judgment, mm-hmm. maybe people would be better off. Yeah. I think people would be better off and it would make, I think it would make everyone a little bit less judgmental. Right. A little bit nicer. Um, yeah, exactly. A little bit nicer. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, why would you want people to know that? And I, and I, it just didn't even occur to me that I'm letting people know. It's kind of, you know, if, if one person can hear my story and re- not, and not even, not even get inspired. I'm not talking, oh, get inspired and right. turn your life. If one person can hear my story and just go, mm-hmm, that's all I get I, it. That's all yeah, I ask exactly. for. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too, is like, I feel like it's interesting because like you said, you're not on here to say, oh, Drugs aren't fun, but it's more like to know, to know and hear someone else's story of like, okay, here's one type of lifestyle and here's another type of lifestyle Mm -hmm. and I'm choosing to live this one because it's better for me Mm -hmm. and it's better for my child. And, you know, so it's, it's interesting because I think that there's, there's so many different, there's so many different stories and experiences people can Mm -hmm. have, but I think that it's just so interesting that you can see how both different lifestyles can affect you and what's better for you and I don't know because I think that coming, like you said, coming on here and saying, "Oh well, it was it was horrible and it was this and that." Of course, there was horrible aspects, and it it isn't the best way to live life. No. <laughs> but but you know, I, I just think that it's inspiring that you know having your daughter 
was able to make you have that change and mm-hmm. just be like, okay, I need help. I'm going to do this for her. And right. ultimately you ended up doing it for both of you. Exactly. And yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's incredible. And how long have you been clean now? Oh gosh. Um, five years. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Good job. Yeah, Congratulations. <laughs> that's, that's seriously incredible. And, and it's great. Yeah. Like I'm so happy. And, um, you know, when I was in treatment, we'd have people come in and share outside meetings. And it was people like me that have, you know, had it four or five years and they come in and they would come in and say, my life is, mind you, I have about five minutes clean at this point. I'm mm-hmm. sitting in a rehab and they'd go, my life is so great. I just bought a car and I just bought a house and I have this and that and my family trusts me and I'm rich now. And I would be sitting there like, fuck you, yeah. fuck you. Like I cannot relate to any of this. Mm-hmm. And so I always said if I ever shared my story, I would just come in and talk about like, I'm happy. We're okay. We're doing okay. Like, you know, I'm content. I'm safe. And that's what I, the feelings of being clean and sober is what I want to talk about. Not the, the material things right. that I've gained along the way, but just the feeling of peace that yeah. I have now. I don't, I no longer live with this in a constant state of anxiety. Um, I, I don't feel like I have to watch my back. I don't have to think about the people that I have around me because I know that the circle I have around me are good people. Um, and I that's what too, I always wanted to share, the feelings that come with being clean. Yeah, I was going to say too, like the ability to be able to put others first right. too, mm-hmm. like not just yourself and not just, I think it helps you become less selfish mm-hmm. and ultimately you're healthier because you're, yeah. you know, you're putting your health first and mental health, physical health, everything. Right. Which is incredible. Yeah. But seriously, it's amazing. Congratulations. Thank that's that's you. really, really good. <laughs> so are you still, are you still living in the Oxford house now? No. So I have an apartment. Okay. Um, it's me, my daughter, daughter's dad. We're all together living in an apartment amazing. and we are about to buy a house, which I know I just said I wouldn't <laughs> no, do. No, that's good, but though. But we are. We're, we're, we're starting house hunting. Good. Um, and we're we're okay. Yeah. You know, we're not, you know, we still have our issues. We still have our day-to-day, but we're okay. We, yeah. um, it's, it's such a good feeling to come home, you know, like when I leave here, I'm going to drive home. I'm going to plop down on my couch that I bought and I'm going to watch the TV that I pay for. Yeah. And I'm going to go take a nap in my bed that I paid for. Yeah. And it's it's such a good feeling. And I never thought that I would have anything like that. I I did not plan to live past about the age of 23, 24. I never saw life past about my, maybe my early 20s and the fact that I'm here approaching 30 and we're okay. I mean, that's, yeah. that's all I can ask for. And you're sharing your story and mm-hmm. and I can't express enough. I I always tell people, I think the more experience you that, that you have in life and the more mm-hmm. shit that you go through makes you just a more incredible person, mm-hmm. no matter how dark or how bad it yeah. is. Of course, like in those moments, it's, it's never good. But I think that all of those things they make you who you are. They make you stronger. And they mm-hmm. teach you so many lessons in life yes. <laughs> that you wouldn't have without it. You know, so I, I just think that's incredible. And and I think it's amazing where you are now. Thank I think, you. you know, I know that you said not to inspire, but it is an inspiration because to get – it is because to, to have that many years clean, people still struggle every day, mm-hmm. you know. And it's – I think that it is something that people can watch and they can relate to it or they can be like, mm-hmm, I get it. But then they could also watch and be like, okay, well, if she could do it, I could do it. Right. And I think that's something that you should realize too. And like I said, I, I always say, 
you should be so proud for wanting to come on and even mm-hmm. share your story to people because that takes a lot of balls. Yeah. A lot of balls. <laughs> yeah. So getting sober is probably the one of my biggest accomplishments. It was right. it was hard. It was hard. Um and staying sober yeah, too. Yeah, and staying sober. Because you had you had the moments of like going back and forth and back and forth. Mm-hmm. So you got it all, you know it. So. Yeah. There's a saying that people always say, like, what is it? Let me think. Let me think. <laughs> it's um my worst day sober is better than my best day getting high. I think that's bullshit. That's such, <laughs> that's such bullshit. Like I've had some really shitty days in sobriety and I've yeah. had some really good days in mm-hmm. active addiction. That being said, it's better on this side. It's, you know, I, anyone who's listening, I can promise it's better on this side. Life is better. Right. Mm-hmm. And on that note. Yep. <laughs> good job. You did amazing. Seriously. Thank you.